I'm Lainey Law. And I'm attorney Andrew Myers. Today we're going to be discussing about what happens if something happens when you're in a rideshare and they tell you you can't sue them. While it seems a little bit far-fetched, unfortunately, this is something that can happen to real people. What happens when we get into that type of scenario? I'm in a hurry to get to my next meeting and my car is in the shop. So have you thought about taking a ride share out? Well, that's what I'm trying to do, but they have all of these things I have to click through. You should really make sure you're reading through all of that stuff before you're clicking it. I don't have time for that. It's just a bunch of crap. People are waiting for me. You might be sorry. Well, Lainey, first of all, uh, we're going to look at two cases in this podcast, and they're actually real cases where uh, people were in ride shares, specifically Uber, and uh, they had accidents. In one case, the person suffered severe permanent injuries, and they tried to bring legal actions against Uber, and Uber threw up every red flag in the book, preventing them from suing. There was a guy by the name of William Good, and he was a cook at a restaurant in downtown Boston. He was working until late at night, and he needed a ride home. So he called Uber through his phone, and they sent someone out to his restaurant in Boston to take him home to Somerville. And the driver was very happy to take him to Somerville because he says, Oh, I can fly around out there. There's not as much traffic. So Mr. Good got into the Uber car, and they rode out to Somerville. Once they got into Somerville, the driver was very happy, and he says, I can fly around now. And he drove really fast. He went back and forth, and he had an accident. He hit something in the car, and he hit it very hard because Mr. Good flew around inside the car and seriously permanently injured himself. He had a, he had a broken neck, and he was seriously permanently injured. So that sounds like something that should be cut and drive. This person was driving. They got into an accident. Why has this become such an issue? Well, what happened is when Mr. Good uh, or his family sued Uber, Uber said, hey, wait a minute. No, you can't sue us. Um, Mr. Good had been an Uber customer for a long, long, long time. And one night before this accident, he went to upgrade his Uber and they said, yeah, you can't use our um, rideshare anymore unless you upgrade uh, because we have new terms of service. So Mr. Good did that. He went into the, he went into his, um, his telephone, his iPhone, and they wouldn't let him uh, use Uber anymore unless he clicked a couple of buttons. And so he did that. They said, no, you can't sue us. And, um, you know, if you do, you've already agreed to these terms. And so uh, Mr. Good and his family were just really put off by by this fact. And they um, uh, went ahead and they sued uh, Uber anyhow. And Uber filed a motion to dismiss the case. The court said, you know what, um, Mr. Good didn't read the terms of service, but um, he wasn't required to read the terms of service the way that they set the whole thing up. So what can these companies do to make sure that people are actually reading this? Because if you're clicking... I agree to the terms of service is like, isn't that you basically saying, giving them all permission? Is it really on the company to be responsible for whether or not you actually read that? Well, you would, that, what you're saying makes sense, but we're talking about what happened in court here. And um, what the court said is um, they looked really deeply into this and 
although Uber argued that, well, you know what, people are responsible. Uh, if they are going to use our service, they, they're responsible for reading this. Here's what the court said. Um, Laney, I'm sure you've, you've uh, signed into different um, social media uh, programs and different apps, right? Mm-hmm. And when you do, they tell you you can't get into our um, app unless you uh, read our terms of service, right? Yeah, I've seen it done a couple of different ways, yeah. You've seen it done different ways? Okay. Mm-hmm. Have you always read the terms? I mean, not to put myself on blast, but, you know, sometimes I just got to get things done. I'm sorry. Kind of like the little skit skit we had before, but okay. So what the court said is um, there are different types of screens that uh, tell people, uh, put them on notice that uh, there are terms of service. Um, And there's all kinds of different terms. You've seen them in social media and in uh, various applications. I've seen them in various applications. You can't even get into some of them without um, going through these screens. So if you're a computer geek or you're a webmaster or an IT person, we're going to go by the terms that the court saw when the court looked at Uber's uh, interface. The things the court said were important are, let's look at whether it's a click wrap or a scroll wrap. Well, what's a click wrap or a scroll wrap? Here's how the court defined those terms. A click wrap requires a user to consent to terms and conditions by clicking on a dialog box to go to the next step. Note, the user might not actually view the language to which they are assenting. So in other words, they've got to click something, but they don't necessarily have to read it. Click wrap is distinguished from scroll wrap, which requires users to physically scroll through the internet agreement in order to get to and click the I agree button. And note here that uh, the user must at least scroll through the language. They may or may not actually read it. Does that make any sense? That does. So does that mean that a scroll wrap would be more binding than clip wrap? Yeah, that's exactly what they're saying. They're saying if you don't even have to read the terms, then how can the company, whether it's Uber here or a social media site or uh, some um, software company, if they don't even provide you the opportunity to read the agreement, how can a binding contract have been formed? And that, you know, that completely makes sense. And it sounds like to me that with the Uber case that they may not have fulfilled their due diligence in making sure that someone's actually looking through that agreement. I think you're right. You should be a judge. <laughs> but let's, Sign me up. <laughs> let's, let's take a look at um, what Uber's interface actually looked like. And there are all different kinds. And I'm going to show you the interface as it was scribbled out in the court case in the case of Good versus Uber. Here's the interface. Uh, Here's the exact language that was used by Uber. Uh, They said, we encourage you to read our updated terms in full. Notice they used the word encourage. They didn't say you have to. All right, so that's uh, the top of the interface. Then below that, there were two links in blue. Their terms of use and their privacy notice. So those were links that you could opt to use. You didn't really have to. And in fact, the problem in this case was that in Uber's interface, it said at the bottom, by checking this box, I have reviewed and agreed to the terms of use and acknowledged the privacy notice. So the important thing here is that Uber was saying, ah, here's our terms of use. If you want to update your uh, contract with us, there they are. But you can check this box here and, and click confirm without ever even having read it. 
But that sounds like it would be at the liability of the person. The person is the one agreeing, like, oh, I did this. Just because they didn't see it, that doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't agree to it, does it? I'm going to take your judgeship away from you. Ah, <laughs> no! And, and the reason is because um, the court actually looked into old, old, old contract law. Contract law is something that goes back centuries and centuries back to England, and our ancestors brought it over from England to the United States, and there have to be uh, certain elements in a contract. There has to be an offer, there has to be an acceptance, and there has to be consideration. Part of accepting a contract is being on notice of the terms, and unless the person is on notice of the terms, a lot of contract law says there's no contract. So let's take a look at how the court um, looked at this, and the court said, uh, notice and assent are important for a contract to be formed, and this is, this actually goes back hundreds of years, but the application here is a relatively recent thing with all the computer interfaces that we see. The court said for there to be a valid contract, there have to be two things. Notice, the app or the company must reasonably notify the user that there are terms to which the user will be bound and give the user the opportunity to review those terms. The second element is that there must be assent. In other words, this requires an affirmative act such as clicking a button that states, I agree. Uh, this alerts the users to the significance of their actions, and it shows that, in fact, there is reasonable assent. Well, that sounds great, but I guess, like, my main confusion with this is that they went through, you know, they didn't have it properly set up, they didn't make sure that this was presented to the person, that the person's agreeing with it. They, in modern terms, took the L. It was a big loss for them. You know, they should have had this right, <laughs> set right. up. They yeah. didn't. Um, so I guess why wouldn't they just accept defeat in a way? And aren't they required to have insurance? Why wouldn't their insurance just pay the scenario out? Ah, uh, that's a good point. Um, yes. Uh, legislators in most of the states have uh, imposed insurance regulations on rideshares. That's not the issue we're talking about here. The issue that we're talking about here is they don't want to be responsible. They don't want you to have that insurance. But, um, yes, insurance is required. Did you want to go over that provision? Yeah, let's go and let's talk about that a little bit. Massachusetts law requires rideshare cars logged into the network but not actually carrying any passengers to carry liability insurance with limits of $5,000 per person and $1,000 per accident for bodily injury caused by an accident. When the driver actually carries a passenger, the required insurance must cover up to $1 million. That covers death, bodily, and property damage in a single accident. Now, that was just Massachusetts. New Hampshire is a little bit of a different state because New Hampshire, you're not actually legally required to have insurance for your car. So, because New Hampshire has no mandatory auto insurance law in general, rideshare drivers still must carry auto insurance. So, even if they're not carrying a passenger, as long as they're logged in, they must carry liability insurance with limits of $50,000 per person or $100,000 per accident. When engaged with the rideshare passenger, the mandatory insurance level rises to $300,000, including coverage for death, bodily injury, and property damage. So accidents involving rideshare vehicles can bring in at least three insurance companies, and that's a lot of work for these companies to kind of be going through. And I 
makes sense that they wouldn't want to be dealing with that. Yeah, the reason that they could bring in three different insurance companies is if, if you think about it, when you're in an Uber or a Lyft or any other ride share, um, you're a passenger in a car. And suppose you're in an intersection accident. Well, suppose that the car is hit by somebody who ran the stop sign. Now you're talking about the insurance company for the third party, the person that, that hit the Uber. But what if the Uber driver may have uh, gone through a really pregnant yellow light? We've all seen those people, right? <laughs> the New Hampshire special is like, it's just turning yellow. <laughs> right. And so now the, in, in intersection accidents, frequently there's a question of liability. Well, was it really, did you really gun it through the yellow there, Lainey, and uh, maybe hit the red light? <laughs> so now there's a question. Was it the other car? Was it the driver of Uber? Or was it Uber itself? Because as you just pointed out in reading that, um, the driver and Uber are two different entities, both of whom are required to have insurance. So it can get complicated. It can uh, require that you're dealing with three insurance companies. I've dealt with cases like that where you're dealing with three insurance companies, not to mention Massachusetts is a no-fault state. So your medical bills, even if the other guy is 100% at fault, your own insurance company is going to be responsible for your medical bills. Oh, my goodness. So it can get a little bit complicated. But I wanted to um, sidestep a little bit because the issue here is um, not that they do have insurance, but that they don't be—they don't want to be responsible. They're doing everything they can to throw these screens up at you, and then hold it against you, whether you read it or not. Um, in the old days, I don't know if you remember these things, but it, in the old days, we would actually go to the stationery store and we would buy programs. I mean, this this is ancient, I know. <laughs> now we download everything on our iPhones and our computers. But in the old days, we would go to the um, store and buy these programs, and it's on a disc on the inside, but you can't get to the disc unless you open the package, right? Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Now I've opened the package and I've, in the old view, a lot of um, corporate attorneys and contract attorneys said, oh, just by opening that box, you have assented to our terms of service. That's what this case is all about. No, you have to at least have the terms there. So in terms of the computer, um, when you sign up for an app or renew your um, app with um, Uber or Lyft, uh, they can't just do what Uber did here. They can't just say, oh, well, you know, uh, you're on notice that there are terms of service. No, they have to actually make you scroll through it, even if you don't read it. If you scroll all the way through it and get to the bottom and then click assent, it might, may seem like a small point, but at least you've had the opportunity to read it. So that's... That's their point of view, and that's what the court said about their point of view. So I guess all of that makes sense, and I think it is fairly reasonable, like what you said with the notice and the assent, that, you know, a contract's not going to be legally binding unless the person was actually presented with it. And I think that a lot of people watching this right now can rest a little bit easier, but just make sure that you fully know what you're agreeing to, or if you don't know what you're fully agreeing to, Maybe just click that agree button and see if it lets you go through without actually reading the documents because that claim might have some legal standing, it sounds like, from this. Right. And we have to remember that this isn't just like some kind of an esoteric legal um, argument that we're having here sitting in my conference room. I mean, this fellow uh, was a hardworking guy. He had worked all day at his shift in a Boston restaurant. It was after midnight, and he got into this car uh, with the Uber driver, and uh, because of the negligence of the Uber driver, 
he was he broke his neck and he's a paraplegic for life. He's got a serious permanent disability, and so it's not it's not just like us sitting here talking. Oh, isn't that interesting? Isn't that a nice legal point? I mean, in this in this case, um, he uh, was seriously injured, and he'll never be the same. There's another point that uh, maybe I should have brought up earlier, but I'll bring it up here. We were just talking about how there might be different insurance companies. Obviously, in the in the case that we're talking about here, the guy that drove like crazy and was driving all over the road and all but went out and said, hee-haw, we're having a good time. Uh, Uber probably has a lot of liability in this case because it turned out after the accident that uh, when people went in to this driver's driver's record, which is public, by the way, there were 20 violations. He had 20 moving violations in his um, driving record. So Uber knew or should have known that the guy had a very serious driving record. He had had uh, violations, 20 of them before. And so Uber shares the responsibility, too, for allowing this guy to drive for them. Do you think that it is Uber's responsibility if they're hiring these independent contractors to make sure that, you know, like, ultimately, these people, you can, anybody can sign up for Uber. Does Uber legally have a responsibility to make sure that these people aren't... Bad drivers. Bad drivers. <laughs> well, you're, you're stating their argument perfectly because that's what Uber and Lyft have always said since they were set up. I believe Uber goes back to 2009 uh, when they were first set up. They said, oh, we don't have anything to do with transportation. We're just a software company. We just provide the software and then people can drive if they want. But think about it from your point of view. Have you ever taken an Uber? All the time. I mean, you know, I get, I'm in that guy's same position late at night. It's just like you're not walking home, Uber, Lyft, all these rideshare companies. They're taking over. It's so easy to get one now. Well, I've never taken an Uber, but I need, I need some minor surgery <laughs> in the near future. And um, I've had friends tell me, well, you know, we'll give you a ride. We'll pick you up. We'll take you down there, bring you back. It's no big deal. But I'm... You know, it's it's 35, 40 miles away that I have to go. So I'm thinking I've never taken an Uber or a Lyft. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, maybe I should do it. Apparently, it's very simple. You just go on your how, – how long does it take on your iPhone to set it up? You know, honestly, making an account, you can just log in with your existing accounts that you have already. It probably takes from five minutes from downloading the app, getting on, and – getting a ride and having someone request it to you. So it's very, very quick and simple. So, that, so that's fine, um, and I may do it. But um, in your situation where you want to ride home or a lot of people like myself have medical appointments and they want to uh, get somewhere, when you call through their software, even if they say, oh, we're only software and, oh, our drivers are all independent contractors, don't you want to have assurance that they know who's driving for them? Would you... When you call for an Uber driver who you've uh, never met before, would you want somebody to come pick you up who has 20 violations on their record? You know, that's a fair point. And it's interesting that you say that because if this were a taxi company, that wouldn't even be a consideration. I can't imagine that people would be able to get a job at a taxi company if they had any type of history. No, of course not. No, of course not. But Uber tried at first to get around that by saying, oh, we're an independent contractor. But... That argument is going away pretty much. That argument is going away with more and more cases like the one we're talking about here. So now that you think that Uber's had this issue, we'd imagine that they would be doing something to at least try to remedy this, that they're trying to make improvements like current date. I imagine that they're doing something to fix it. 
Well, I, I would certainly think so. I mean, now that this has come up, the, uh, there are two cases that are pretty, pretty much the same as the one we're talking about here, and they've made big headlines nationally. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, anybody with half a brain, I would think, in the corporate headquarters would say, hmm, we've got to do something about that. And I would imagine that the interface that we just looked at on the computer is, doesn't exist. And I would imagine, I mean, how easy would it be to change that? But, but I was just reading the newspaper the other day, uh, Wall Street Journal, and just, uh, just the other day I was reading this, and one of their chief executives, uh, who is the executive head of driver operations, gave a four-hour Zoom meeting with company executives. Her name is Carol Chang. And in a 227-slide presentation to all the Uber executives nationwide, she outlined three of the company's competing objectives. And I'm quoting, the objectives are keeping costs low, avoiding legal risks, and attracting drivers. So if they only have three big major goals, and one of them is avoiding legal risks, don't you think that after they... Don't you think that after they clean up this legal issue, they'll find something else to keep themselves separated from people? Well, I would think that, but you did mention there was a second story. So it sounds like these rideshare companies have kind of like a history of having these incidents occur. You mentioned to me previously that there was one incident that involved a blind man. Oh, that's... I think that blind uh, individuals' uh, case is even more egregious, although I don't know which one is egregious. Yeah, that was a case involving a well-known Boston attorney, actually, who I knew. Um, everybody knew him. His name was Christopher Cotters. He was a professional arbitrator mediator. He's blind. He was a very bright, 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 bright man. Uh, but he's blind. He was blind. And he called Uber. And he had a companion dog, a German Shepherd, that was always with him. Uh, the German Shepherd got uh, Mr. Carter's through all of downtown Boston. They'd get on a bus and go up to Manchester, New Hampshire, and the dog got him to wherever he had to be. Uh, so Mr. Carter's called Uber. The Uber driver got there and said, oh, you have a dog. We're not going to let you in our car. Three different Uber drivers refused to allow this man to get into their cars. And... I mean, I, to me, that's just egregious. And it's, I guess, interesting to me because even though it is a service animal, because these people are independent contractors, according to these rideshare companies, wouldn't you think that they have the ability to decide what comes into their car, even though I don't necessarily agree that you should not be allowing someone's service animal because they're independent contractors? Wouldn't you think that they can kind of make their own rules in that regard? Well, maybe. I mean, I have a dog, so I have no problem with dogs in my car. But sure, there are people that are really picky and they don't want a dog in their car. But are you forgetting about the Americans with Disability Act? And uh, what the Americans with Disability Act says is that reasonable accommodations have to be made in a public accommodations and giving a, giving a ride to people blind or otherwise disabled is a public accommodation. Unfortunately, the case never even got that far because in that case, like the one we talked about before, Uber said, you can't sue us. You've got to go to arbitration. And can you explain arbitration a little bit to me? Like, because I'm not too familiar with all the processes of law. What does arbitration involve? And you say that they're saying that you can't sue us and they're making you go to arbitration? 
Well, that was one of the terms of service. Remember we talked about those little blue links before? What um, Uber was saying was two things. One, we're not responsible for personal injuries. And two, if you try and sue us, you cannot go to a public court. You can't have your constitutional right of a day in court, uh, which is firmly embedded in the Constitution. And you must arbitrate. So your question about arbitration there's a time and a place for arbitration. I've arbitrated many cases. There's a time and a place for it. But to just simply throw up you know, a flag and say, no, you can't sue us, you've got to arbitrate the case, seemed a little bit outrageous, especially since what Mr. Cotters did was he was an arbitrator. He did do um, mediations and that sort of thing uh, in terms of out-of-court settlements and out-of-court um, attempts to resolve cases. Um, the downside was that Uber had the opportunity to help steer the arbitration their way, and the arbitrator ruled against the blind guy. The oh, my goodness. ruled against the blind guy, and he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Constitution of the United States allows me to um, bring this to a jury of my peers. And Uber said, no. Um, we you you went through all of that stuff and you didn't read it. That's your fault. Uh, and they stopped him. The question you asked, though, arbitration, mediation, case evaluation are valid, legitimate ways to resolve a case out of court. But the question is, should people be forced to use those? And I guess what's interesting to me how you say that should people be forced to use those is that in a series, like in a scenario where that guy had gotten into an injury, he's permanently injured for life, and now he's being forced into arbitration? Like, that is absurd. You know, other companies in this scenario, for example, can be in fault, and they still force you to go through the arbitration. Right. That You're putting your finger exactly on the issue. You know, a lot of times we do litigation, and we do what's called discovery, which we could do a whole another podcast on someday. <laughs> um, and then when we get to the end, when both the injured person and the insurance company have a better idea of all the facts in the case, and they're all fleshed out, then arbitration is often a... Um, a valid way to end the case, or mediation, uh, and I can tell you about the differences between those two in the end, but they're really not valid until the facts are all explored in, in the discovery phase of, of litigation. So it was wrong, and I think the court agreed in both of these cases to force somebody into the arbitration uh, before they had the opportunity at least to to you know, not have the tail wag the dog. In other words, to get into it through the litigation first and then arbitrate the case. And it's funny to me that you mention uh, some tail wagging going on. <laughs> I know that uh, I had mentioned to you that I had previously discussed a little story that you had told me about with a, a famous liquor company and a dog toy. We're going to talk about that now? I think. I think there was a dog toy manufacturer that manufactured a dog toy that looked like a liquor bottle and you looked into that for us didn't you yeah let's go and take a look at that video recently a dispute between the makers of jack daniels whiskey and the makers of a squeaking dog toy actually went to the u.s supreme court the issue for the court involved whether or not the manufacturer of the dog toy called bad spaniels infringes on jack daniels trademark by making their dog toy look like their iconic whiskey bottle Arguments during the hearing left it unclear whether Jack Daniels' case is on the rocks or the maker of Bad Spaniel's toy had been, well, bad. 
Justice Samuel Alito questioned whether any reasonable person could think that Jack Daniels had actually approved the use of the trademark for the dog toy. Alito suggested that the toy simply parodies the liquor company and is therefore legally acceptable. When the company's lawyers pushed back, Alito responded in part with, I had a dog. I know something about dogs. His late Springer Spaniel Zeus sometimes even visited the court. But Justice Elena Kagan seemed more ready to rule against the toy's manufacturer. Maybe I don't have a sense of humor, Kagan said to laughter, but what's the parody? Kagan suggested the toy is simply an ordinary commercial product that is spoofing the look of the liquor company's bottle. The dog toy had been on the market since 2014 as a part of a line of chew toys that mimic liquor, beer, wine, and soda bottles. Others include Mountain Drool, which parodies Mountain Dew, and Heine Sniffin, which parodies Heineken. The packaging of the toy, which retails for around $20, notes in small font, this product is not affiliated with the Jack Daniel distillery. In the U.S., the country's major trademark law, the Lanham Act, lies at the core of this case. The federal law prohibits use of any trademark in a way that's likely to cause confusion as to the origin, sponsorship, or approval of goods. And Jack Daniels says that's exactly what the dog toy does. They say that a lower court was wrong to side with a dog toy company. But that company told the justices in a court filing that Jack Daniels seeks to use the Lanham Act to muzzle a playful dog toy parody. Other manufacturers, apparently feeling threatened by this alleged misuse of a trademark, filed papers supporting the dog toy manufacturer. They include Nike, Campbell Soup Company, Patagonia, and Levi Strauss. So, what did you think of that story? That's crazy. How could anybody ever confuse a dog toy with an actual bottle of whiskey? Don't you think that's nuts? You know, it's a little insane, but I can understand not wanting my brand associated with things that I didn't agree to. But cheers on a good episode. Yeah, I guess you're right. Um, if you're a company, and it could happen with any type of product, the idea of uh, patent law is to make sure that there's no confusion. I'm still surprised that that one went to the Supreme Court, but you know what? I guess they want to uh, protect their um, name and brand. Uh, in the future, we'll be doing podcasts on other serious topics, uh, topics that have been uh, very popular in the blogs that I've been doing for 10 years and uh, you know other topics like that. And if anybody's interested in learning more about those blogs, Andrew has his website. Attorney-Myers, M-Y-E-R-S dot com. If you have any questions about this topic or really any topic at all or an idea for a future blog, please feel free to um, contact us. My website has a contact us block, and we also have our phone numbers. So contact us at attorney-myers.com. Also, if you've been injured, if you have a case that you'd like to talk to us about, please feel free to contact us. And this is a new channel, so if you enjoyed this video and you want to see others like it, please make sure to like this video, subscribe to our channel, and if you want to share this content with your friends, it would be really appreciated. Thank you guys so much for watching, and we'll see you in the next one. Until next time.